A very warm welcome to the Cricket Library podcast. My name is Matt Ellis and it's wonderful to have your company in the 2020 series, our first podcast for 2020. And if you've missed any of the previous episodes, please make sure you check them out at your favourite podcast provider, probably where you're listening from right now. That may be Spotify, that might be Apple, iTunes, it may also be iHeartRadio or the Today's Tale website, wherever it is that you're listening, please make sure you subscribe so that you can find us there again in the future. We have a very informative chat coming up for you from someone who's written five books. So being a Cricket Library podcast, an author is always a good option for a guest. But this person has also played a bit of first-class cricket. They've done a fair bit in first-class cricket, actually. A Sheffield Shield winner, a one-day domestic cup winner with South Australia as well. Three five-wicket hauls, a couple of half-centuries, Best figures of 7 for 65. We'll have to find out more about that. Uh, we have a look at his career outside of cricket because of uh, three seasons, uh, moving into performance psychology after that, uh, a very interesting transition for Graham Winter from cricketer to performance psychologist to author. He's done a lot of things, he's learned a lot, and he's got a lot of wisdom to share with us on the program this evening, and, and looking forward to hearing about his new book, Mindful Cricket, his reasons for writing it, and the new training methods that he's using at the moment with a workbook as well that has come out to supplement that book, Mindful Cricket. So this is one for those that want to improve themselves uh, at their cricket, want to learn a little bit and take themselves to the next level. Sit back, relax, and enjoy our chat with Graham Winter. And joining us on the Cricket Library podcast, it's a very warm welcome to Graham Winter. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? Very well, thanks, mate. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the podcast this evening and chat a little bit about all sorts of things, really. We're going to have a chat about your cricket career and, and your love of the game and some of the things you're working on at the moment uh, with a new book that you've written, Mindful Cricket, and a workbook that goes with that. But we might kick things off the way we normally start on the podcast and just if you could give us a little bit of insight into to where your love of the game uh, began. Yeah, it's an interesting question, Matt. I Look, I, in thinking about that, I actually can't remember not playing cricket and our, I grew up in a place with a, our neighbours had a very large garage with a, with a cement wall that sort of was our place and look honestly my, many of my only memories are just playing cricket against that wall and then wanting my dad to come home and play cricket and uh, then I was fortunate school wise I um, secondary school went to Prince Alfred College um, had um, Chester Bennett as a coach so Chester of Coached the chapels and oh, an enormous number of players that went on and played first class cricket. So I think I had that natural love of the game. Then I think I got put into an environment where I had the opportunity, you know, the privilege to just play in great conditions with great coaches. And of course, when you love something and then you find that you're actually okay at it and the, the place nurtures it, it just kind of went on from there. So um, yeah, so I think the simple answer is I, I can't remember not loving the game. 
That's outstanding. I I, I always get fascinated because uh, there's so many people that don't end up playing first class cricket that have similar experiences to that. They they're in a good environment. They love the game. Uh, they're they're enjoying what they're doing. So, what was the transition for you uh, in in terms of w- when did you come to a point when you realised that that you could actually make something of your cricket and uh, when were you starting to kind of get noticed? Yeah, um, I mean, I'm, I'm going to get back to Chester Bennett again. And it's a, quite a bit of a funny story. I mean, I was a reasonable batsman as a, as a kid and I was actually quite a reasonable tennis player too. And my dad was the president of a tennis club and he said to me uh, when I was in year seven, he said, you're going to have to make a decision whether you want to play tennis or play cricket. And I was actually better at tennis than I was at cricket. But I really liked cricket. I was a batsman who bowled off spin, not particularly well. I was a reasonable batsman. And I got to about sort of under 14s, um, going into under 15s. And I still remember the night. We were in the nets. We were mucking around. And Chester walked over to me and he said, do you know that stuff that you're just mucking around with over there? And I said, yeah. He said, that's swing bowling. I want you to go and do that in the next few weeks. You can throw the spin stuff away. Um, And he spent a few minutes just sort of coaching me a little bit on how to swing the ball. Um, I took six for four that week. I wow. took four for two the next week. Um, within about a year and a bit, I was in the first 11. Within, what, three years, I was opening the bowling for the state in the 19s and so I went on from there. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, and the batting, <laughs> batting became a, oh, I was okay at school and I could I could bat to save myself when I had a couple of, couple of schools in first class cricket, but it was really that, you know, I, and I guess it's that, isn't that the sort of brilliant of ability of a coach to spot something that you're naturally good at? And, yeah, it just it just went from there. But that, that night of stop mucking around, that's what you're going to do. Um, yeah, changed, well, it changed my life because I'm sure we'll talk about it. It opened up a series of sort of doors and opportunities and it kind of went on from there. That's amazing. So without that coach encouraging you to do so, you may never have had a crack at bowling with the seam up and trying to trying to swing it around. No, no well, I was five foot eleven, uh, weighed the same as I do now, which is about seventy three kilos. That's not exactly the um, not the <laughs> not prototype. Exactly the sort of Pat, no, it's not the Pat Cummins sort of Mitchell Stark sort of prototype. And um, yeah, it was. But I mean, I, can't, I remember just as a kid, Ian Brayshaw playing for um, Western Australia. Um, yeah, we sort of won, and yeah, there were a few few swing bowlers around. So I guess I pretty quickly kind of worked out uh, that yeah, you know, if given the right conditions, I could kind of hold my own. But yeah, I mean, I would have played great cricket as a batter. Uh, I don't think I would have played state cricket as a batsman. I would have had to have um, yeah, everything would have had to gone right. Um, but yeah, I just had yeah, sort of natural well, natural ability that then obviously worked on a lot to bowl an outswinger that swung late. And um, I think, as we all know, if you can land one of those, you're going to get anybody out. And, um, yeah, that was a Chester spotted and kind of all went from there. And you, you mentioned playing under-19s cricket for South Australia. Yeah. What what was the progression like from there to eventually break into the first-class team? Was was there a bit of a, a gap between that, sort of into grade cricket and then, then into the first-class first squad in 81-82? Yeah, there was a bit. Yeah, I had, um, I mean, well, I said under-19s, and we won the national championships that year. Um, David Hooks was in that team, so Hooks, he was, actually, he was Cricketer of the Week that year. Um, 
I played great cricket for about three or four three, three years. Four years, I got picked in the state um, one day team, but then I actually got testicular cancer. Um, oh, wow! Was diagnosed with that not long after um, playing my first game, um, and that was I was captain of the state under twenty threes at the time, and um, and it was misdiagnosed. So um, that sort of to say that set me back. I mean, more than set me back. I had sort of major operations and completely sort of messed things up for uh, 12 months or so. Um, but fortunately got through that, um, got back into um, playing great cricket and then uh, got picked. So that was in uh, well, years on 1979. Uh, so sort of three years later, got into the Shield team and or two, two, two and a half years later. Um, and I played a season in a bit. Uh, we won the Shield that year. Um, and then... I was working as a, a consultant with um, Cooper's Library, so I studied psychology at uni and yep. uh, was sort of working working on being registered as a psych. And um, uh, the partners in the business said, you need to retire, you need to, well, you need to focus on your cricket. Uh, sorry, you need to focus on your business, you need to give up your cricket. So after sort of getting into the team, I retired at the ground at age of about 26. Um, then the partners in that business changed and they said, you can go back and play again. Went, oh, okay, fair enough. Now I've got to get back in the team again. So I got back in the team again. Um, the second half of the next, or the season after, we won the one-day competition that year. And then I got offered the job to set up the sports psychology unit at the South Australian Sports Institute and do some work for the Australian Institute of Sports. So I retired again. So um, so I probably got this rare <laughs> situation in South Australia. But I played about 15 or 20 first-class games but managed to play in a shield-winning team uh, one day cup winning team and also at the end of 19. So, um, yeah, so I, I, look, I, I achieved everything I wanted to do from a cricket point of view, but I was keen on career and wanted to pursue that. So, um, no, no regrets. Um, other than I'd love to have played in England because I think bowling out swingers at Spring oh, Lake wow. <laughs> might have worked, might have worked. Everybody said it might have worked pretty well over there. Um, I remember sort of chatting with Tony Dottomate who's bought similar sort of stuff and, uh, yeah suggested the same thing so yeah <laughs> now now i'm really interested to know uh with your study in psychology and and playing cricket did, did you use any of the strategies that you were learning uh at, at university and apply them to yourself in the context of playing first class cricket oh look i'd have to be honestly absolutely honest and say no <laughs> yeah right um we i i, I my my Postgrad studies were in organisational psychology, okay. and um, I'd always and I've spent and I'm sure we'll talk about. I mean, I've spent most of my career in the in the corporate area uh, doing doing yeah. Psychology. I mean, I'm mostly working with sort of leadership teams and organisations and so on. So, to the it was it was an interesting exercise. the The issue was the coach of the South Australian Sports South Australian um, Shield team at the time was a guy called Howard Musson. And um, chops, as you can probably gather from a cricket as a good, obviously doing uh, doing nicknames. And we were playing a shield game in Perth, and and chops just said to me, "Do you would you be interested in having a conversation about a job?" And I can remember sort of saying, "Mate, I'm, I've got one. I've been, I'm having enough trouble getting to practice and do stuff as it is." And he said, "Well, it's to be a psychologist at the South Australian Sports Institute." And the Director of the institute was Mike Noonan, who was the that stage the North Adelaide AFL footy coach, and then went on and coached Fitzroy in the AFL. And Mike had made it pretty clear that he wanted a psychologist who was playing sport um, at 
on an elite level or close to it. And I think in South Australia that was a short list of one. So, um, so look, I, I, I got asked if I wanted it. I thought that sounded like a fantastic opportunity. Throw the, throw the suit away, put a trackie on and had an absolutely fantastic time. I got the chance to work with some great people and, uh, learned a lot and, um, yeah, it was a really fantastic period. I mean, I gave up cricket because of that. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, it set me up to work with Olympic teams and a whole variety of other things going forward. And, um, yeah, I'd still probably go what's been the most enjoyable working period of my life. And I'd say the, the time, that, that really fast learning curve to work out what sports psychology meant and then how do you apply that. And, and it was quite um, challenging too because you come out of a sport environment, a cricket environment, which, you know, to be blunt, cricket's never really been leading edge in sports science or, coaching or any of these areas and suddenly you're working with some of the best Olympic coaches in the world and um, that was just an amazing um, fast learning curve and, and as I said I'd, I've been trained in the organisational area so I kind of knew my way around that to an extent but I think that helped um, probably alongside having played cricket in having some ways to be able to deal with stuff that was maybe a bit different to the traditional psych approach which is a bit more clinical. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And um, was it tough to to stop playing cricket? Was it something that um, at, at a, a relatively young age uh, y- you found was like a bit of a, a a turning point for you to to walk away from cricket and and move into the the full time work? Um, no, look, interestingly, it wasn't. I mean, I guess the health issue that I'd had earlier, I probably grew up. 20 years in, in sort of 20 months. Yeah, yep. And um, we, I mean, I got married six months before that happened. Um, we went through an overseas adoption process um, in the last year I was playing cricket. And when, when we were offered the, the, the uh, when I was offered the job at the Sports Institute. So we just, at that stage, adopted Mark, our son. And um, so I had a you know, six month old son. He, he, he had, I've been adopted through a government um, process in Sri Lanka. Yep. Um, so, yeah, no, cricket, I'd achieved what I wanted to. Um, I wanted to have a family. I wanted to pursue my career. Um, I was really happy with what I'd achieved from a cricket point of view. Um, and once I discovered this sort of area of, I mean, I'd call it performance psychology, maybe more than sport. Um, yep. cause I had the opportunity then to, I guess, increasingly work with, you know, all sorts of different people that were kind of interested in their own um, performance or their own sort of ability to get the best out of themselves. So, I, look, honestly, I don't think I'm, I, I really didn't miss it. Um, I still stayed interested in it. I, I wrote a book called The Psychology of Cricket um, as a sort of uh, thing that maybe brought a few things together. And, and I suppose the other thing I should say is what I did have was the opportunity to do sports psychology work with the Cricket Academy, yeah. um, working with Rod Marsh. And that was just fantastic. So, um had that chance to work with Rod, who I played against a little bit, and at that stage, um, we had a number of the sort of what became the icons of Australian cricket. You know, Justin Langer was in that group, and you know, Ricky Ponting came in, um, um, and Gilchrist was one of the earlier ones. Um, oh, just yeah, you name it. <laughs> so <laughs> how, how long were you so down there at the academy? Was, was that when uh, that was when it was running out of Glenelg? Yeah, yeah, it was running out of. Um, yeah, well, uh, yeah. So just um, yeah, Henley, just, just sort of along from uh, the airport. Oh, Henley and, Beach, um, yeah. Yeah, so I did that stuff uh, probably three or four years. Um, 
And uh, it, look, it was just a, it was brilliant. I had the opportunity to work with them. I was working with the Australian cycling team, and then um, then from there, um, that opened up the opportunity to be involved with the Olympic team. So, so from my perspective, I guess cricket opened up eyes to a whole range of uh, different sorts of um, yeah different sorts of experiences in the sport area, and and then um, I, I managed to then combine that with the corporate stuff and had a room here. Incredibly interesting career, um, yeah, combining those two uh, yeah, for, for a number of years and I've sort of continued to do that. And and just back on your cricket highlights, you sort of mentioned that you you felt that you'd done everything you wanted to do and just having a quick look over uh, some, of your, some of your highlights that playing in a Sheffield Shield winning team, the last, that was the last season before they played Shield final, so you guys must have had a pretty good season first past the post there and, and you would have been contributing to that. And then, of course, uh, you mentioned the one-day cup final a couple of years later. Uh, in, in amongst all of that, taking five wickets on debut in Sheffield Shield as well, nine wickets for the match, uh, best bowling of seven for 65. We must have been hooping them on that day. So uh, anything stand out um, for you amongst that list of things or any players that you played with that you – were you there when Joel Garner was playing at South Australia? No, he actually played. <laughs> I timed my gap quite well. He played in the gap. Yeah, uh, right. Because <laughs> um, I, I reckon if the selectors had had to have a conversation, it would have been a short night to <laughs> decide between him and me. Um, <laughs> um, oh, definitely. Oh, highlights. Um, that's interesting. I actually did. I'm sure we'll talk about this in the conversation. I, went back and did a, a session with Adelaide Uni last week and um, yeah. it was just fabulous to go back there and sort of, you know, we were, as you do, reminiscing on a whole lot of things. So I, I guess you'd have to say that, I mean, the thing I, I enjoyed the most was just you know, being a part of teams. I think we had a, well, really, Hooksy was the, the captain of our Shield team and I'd played under 19 with Hooksy and yeah, he was just a great character and a great person and, um, yeah, I mean, I, the sort of guy you want to be in the trenches with, um and we had, uh, I'm not fortunate as a bowler, we had some great batsmen. I think the year we were on the Shield, uh, we'd be at Rick Darling, Sleepy, Hooks, Bro, Inverarity, um, Kevin Wright. Uh, so um, we had a side that could pretty well set a total. So I, I guess highlight-wise would definitely be yeah, winning the Shield and winning the one-dayers. And I think from a personal point of view, yeah, I mean, at 7 for 60 was back to West Indies and I got Viv Richards out with an outswinger that he nicked. Oh, wow. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which was funny because one of the uni guys was on the fence at fine leg as Viv came in and he said to me, what are you going to do to him? I said, I'm going to bounce him. I'm going to bowl an outswing. If I get him out, I'm going to retire. So um, I bounced him and he just looked at me and uh, sort of patted the end of the bat handle. And then I bought him the out and he nicked it to Wayne Phillips at um, second slip and he caught it. And uh, <laughs> so I walked down to fine leg and said, okay, mate, um, that should do it. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> So, I mean, that was fabulous, but yeah, look, I, I, I've just been so fortunate with a number of sort of, you know, sport experiences personally and with teams and then, you know, with the sports psychology stuff and so on. But yeah, the, 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 they're, they're the sort of things that sort of stand in mind. But I guess in the end of the day, it's the, it's the team and it's the relationships and, you know, the fact that you're still, I mean, I bumped into guys at the gym on Sunday that, you know, I played shield cricket with and so on. So those relationships are the things that endure. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, that's one of the things I love about the game. I I, I bumped into someone that I I played with in Sydney twenty years ago just today, and 
just that yeah. com- common thread that you have, uh, whether you've seen someone just a week ago or 20 years ago, that there, there are those shared memories from, from playing the game together and, and that's one of, one of the many great things about the game. Now, yeah. working with Olympic athletes, how was that? You, you had 12, yeah. 12 years with the, uh, with the Olympic um, the Olympic team. Yeah. Um, what, yeah. What, what sort of uh, can you what sort of insights can you give us about that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was one of those. It just it just evolved um, because I've done the organisational psychology work. Um, that I think the Olympic Committee liked the idea that um, while I could also do the sports psych work, I sort of understood how to work with leaders and coaches and managers and so on. So. Yeah, I just had the, 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 the absolute honour of the chief psychologist for three Australian Olympic teams, um, including Sydney, um, which was just amazing. And um, it's, uh, yeah, just, just to see you know, Barcelona, Atlanta and Sydney uh, and that sort of experience, you see um, the level of professionalism, the level of commitment, the sacrifice, the Oh, the highs and the lows, and there's plenty of lows. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, yeah, I mean, I learned so much from uh, from coaches. And you know, in Sydney, we had about a dozen, about a dozen sports psychologists sort of working across all the various sports. Um, so it was just a oh, just an absolute. I mean, obviously now you look back and go, "Well, oh, that went really quickly." But yeah, it was the it was an opportunity to um, really apply a lot of stuff. You know, how do you create the motto we often use to use is, you know, how to create the environment in which success is inevitable. Yep. And the, the sort of conversations from 93 onwards in particular, when, when Sydney was awarded the Games, were, you know, how do we, how do we set up a, a team and a, a frame, you know, how do you put a framework in place, put a team in place and develop that so that as we head to Sydney, uh, we can be in the top five um, nations in the world and you know, really make the, the Games an absolute success. Um, so to be a part of that sort of process, um, every step of the way was just extraordinary. I mean, I had my boss in that was Herb Elliott. Oh wow! <laughs> sort of one of the one of the one of the best human beings I think I've ever met. Um, yeah, you got to just sort of watch the best coaches in the world. And alongside that, I was also working with I mean, my day job was PricewaterhouseCoopers Strategic Change Group, which was based in Sydney. So I had the chance to work with you know, on an average week. I might be in Singapore working with the federal government or around Sydney trying to work out how we're going to run deep run sort of briefing sessions for athletes or whatever so it was just a uh, it's always one of those things you just you totally feel it's the imposter syndrome it's like what's a what's a kid from Adelaide who plays cricket sitting here doing this for um yeah but uh but then I guess it, yeah you, <laughs> you you do it as we would say to any any cricketer well you do it one day at a time one moment at a time and um you learn as fast as you can and um Oh, those experiences are fantastic. And um, uh, the, the only thing I'd probably say is from a psychologist's perspective, Sydney was boring because nothing went wrong. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, was a lot more, it, was, it was a lot more interesting in Atlanta and in Barcelona. <laughs> yeah. But um, they're, not things I can, they're probably not things I can share. But, yeah, no, uh, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, fabulous experience. And just with Olympic Games, one of the things that's always fascinated me about the Olympic athletes is their ability – to cope with the pressure of the whole once every four years kind of thing when when 
when we're playing cricket, you've yep. kind of got the next game that you can look forward to. And th- there are the big moments. There's the big Ashes series and, and the World Cups and those kind of things. But for Olympic athletes, they kind of have that that four-year build-up to, to what could mm. either be um, life-defining or um, – yeah, there could be a lot of heartache there for them if it doesn't yeah. turn out the way they hope. How, how do you prepare people for that? <laughs> yeah, I was working with some cricketers earlier in the week and just saying to them, guys, imagine if you had one innings every four years. How do you prepare them? Um, you have to put the best possible um, program around them. The, the, the ones that succeed, you'll get you'll get the occasional individual, almost the outlier that you can put them in any situation and they'll produce their best. Yep. Um, but the the key is that, that, that I mean, it sounds I'm going to get a bit psychological here, but you kind of got to separate. The person's got to learn to separate their identity from their performance. Yep. Because if the if this performance defines you, it's make or break. It's just it's just too much to bear. Um, so what? The good coaches are endeavouring to do is to um, essentially do three things: to develop the ability of their athletes to do the basics and to do them re- repeatedly and consistently under pressure um, yeah. in any situation. The second is to be very, very, very clear what their strengths are and to trust themselves and trust their strengths. Yeah. Um, and then, and then the, the third one is then the ability to operate. If you're in a team environment, it's the ability to operate as a team to apply pressure. Um, and if you're an individual, it's the ability then to apply your sort of pressure, if you like, or your momentum towards your task. So at the end of the day, you cannot – I mean, I've seen it with these, these athletes, and, and yeah, many of them are kids. You cannot take in the enormity of an Olympic Games. Um, there are too many athletes, too much going on, and so on. You have to be on task. Yeah. Um, so the ability of the coach to develop players – we trust the coach, trust the management, trust everything around them so they can just be on task. That's what the whole program and process ultimately is about. You're not trying to perform in the Olympics. You're trying to perform in your sport on a given day at your absolute best because you've prepared yourself to test yourself to be how good you can be. And um, our, our sort of almost final little speech to the athletes they were with wavering in the last 24 hours was always, Trust yourself, you've done the work. Trust your teammates, they've put in everything with you and you know the values and trust the game plan. It's been tried and tested. Get out, have fun and celebrate what you're doing. So it's, it's and of course every individual has differences. Um, but what you try to do is to get them to do their business, to do their trade, their craft, whatever, and not get too absorbed in the, wow, this is the Olympics and everything. It's too big. There's too many expectations. You can't, you just can't take it on. Um, and when you see someone, I mean, Kathy Freeman, um, with the with the sort of enormity of what was around her in Sydney, was just a, wow! What an example of a person that was able to operate in that environment and still bring out her best it was um, one of the most phenomenal performances I've ever seen. So, oh, it was breathtaking, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, and as a psychologist, you kind of look in awe at some of these people going, "God, I don't think I could do that." <laughs> um, so, yeah, and, and, and a lot of it then comes down to that mindfulness, that ability to um, stay calm, composed, clear-minded, focused. And you don't – there's an old rule of sports psychology says the last thing you learn is the first thing that falls apart under pressure, which basically means somebody tells you something to do when you go out the bat, the first thing you'll forget or the first thing will go wrong. 
So what will happen under pressure is what you've drilled and what you've been prepared for. So, um, and, and that's almost always the basics and then a bit of inspiration on top of it, you hope. Um, and of course, different for different sports. And now you've written five books and you've got a new one uh, that's on the shelves now. I'm, I'm really interested about this. I'd, I'd love to know uh, a bit of the process and the, the rationale or the reason. What, what, what's driven you to write your latest book, Mindful Cricket? Um, oh, two things. Well, three things probably triggered it. One was I wrote the psychology of cricket um, in the nineties, and I've had so many people say to me, "Why don't you do another one?" Um, and then um, Ashley Ross, who um, till recently was the uh, head coach for the ICCA Academy, um, and now the coaching coordinator of the South Australian Sports Institute, and he coached his on one stage and so on. Ash said to me about four years ago, you should get back into the sports psychology stuff. You've got skills. You've got you know, you've got all these interesting experiences. Why don't you do it? And um, he said, I'm doing stuff in Dubai, about coming over and doing something with it. So he invited me to come over and uh, run some mindset stuff for the Global Level 3 Coaches Program. And I guess that kind of sparked it because I yep. just suddenly realized that, wow, well, I've spent I mean, the last 20 years, I've essentially just worked for, um, work well, I have my own consulting business and have just largely worked, um, I did a lot of work for universities and, you know, large corporations and so on around their sort of leadership and their teamwork and, um, agility and so on. So, so we created, um, some different style of training activities. Um, and Ian Renshaw, who's at Queensland, yeah, he, yeah, he was, Ian was part of that and we, I just thought, wow, there's, it's probably time to do something different. And then my wife said to me, well, why don't you rewrite the book? Um, so I, so I just made the decision about 18 months ago. I said, okay, I'm going to devote, I'm going to wind the consulting down a little bit and I'm going to devote a bit of time to that. So I spent about 12 months just trying to bring together stuff from three areas. So performance psychology is obviously what I've learned, the Olympics and so on. Um, from, um, agility and agile. So a lot of the, a lot of the work that's going on in, um, in business these days is around building agility into teamwork. So how do you speed up the learning? How do you um, get teams that are better at sort of solving uh, their problems and, and so on? Um, and then I want to obviously combine that with some sort of some of the sort of classic um, sort of sports psychology stuff that and sort of basic coaching. Um, so that's where Mindful Cricket was was sort of born from. So I decided I'd write more. I decided I would try and put a framework and a program together and maybe so that we can provide something particularly for coaches and serious players because bluntly the, 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 the cricket environment and the cricket training environment is so different to the environment of the competitive environment and therefore what can we do to, to better equip um, cricketers um, and I think that fits both at the sort of mindset for performance end and at the mental health end as well. So and obviously we can sort of talk a little more about that but that was the sort of input to spirit. It was a bit of bring my passion together and sort of almost create bookends for a career that sort of started in cricket, um, spent a few bit of time working with sort of, you know, Olympics and you know, corporations around the world and then thought, well, okay, let's um, yeah, come back home and do something um, that uh, sort of fits those passions together. So that's, that's what I'm spending about half my time on now. And, and do you find players these days are, are more open to the sports psychology side of thing, the thinking side of the game more so 
than back when you were playing? Yeah, they're more open, but I don't think the the coaching um, support. I don't think the support for coaches, and the, I don't think there's been enough. Um, I mean, I've seen it. Obviously, I've seen it in a number of other sports because of the experiences I've had. I, I just don't think there's been enough challenging around how do we create a learning environment for young cricketers to develop the capabilities that they need. So, if you think of yeah, you know, one of the things we sort of started with is, you know, as, as you do if you're doing business stuff, is, you know, what are the problems you're trying to solve? And so I go, well, okay, well, the four that come to mind for me. One is um, players players get very reactive in their mind. So they react to the score, they react to the situation, they react to their opponents. Um, and rather than being able to stick to their plans, they'll they'll get reactive. Secondly, they get distracted. So they'll distract themselves or distract other people. Third, they make it too complicated, so I overthink. Yeah. And fourth, they're too slow to adapt. If you look at those almost as the four enemies, then I come back and go, well, okay, what do you see in people who genuinely perform? So how do, you, know, you ask the question, yeah, what does an Olympic athlete do? Uh, four things. They're composed, uh, so they're clear-minded, so they're composed, they're focused on tasks, they keep it simple, and they adapt fast. Yeah. So so what I've endeavoured to do is sort of look at the uh, sort of cricket environment, say, okay, what can we do to help our cricketers to get a clearer mind. And then the next piece to that are what I'd call three attitudes. One is going towards success rather than avoiding failure, which I'd call play brave. Yep. Um, being clever rather than dumb, so you match awareness, like Shane Ward would call it. Yep. Yeah, how, do, how, do I read, how do I read the game and apply my game to that game? Um, and the third one is, um, and to me that's play clever, and the, and the fourth one is how do I play better So uh, and, and learn. So... I think what I'm finding with a lot of the younger cricketers is they're really, really keen to understand how do I get clearer in my mind? How do I learn to play brave? How do I learn to play clever? How do I learn to play better? And I think that the challenge is, is for us to see whether there's ways we can help coaches to develop those capabilities in cricketers. But this is with an Olympic athlete. You don't just focus on their cricket environment. You focus on the person and the context in which they live their life. So whether they work, whether they study, what are their daily routines, and you develop a person who's got the ability to do those four things, cricket just becomes one of the places in which they develop that capability. Because um, I think it was Alan Bordy years ago, said you don't live an undisciplined life and then walk out the bat for six hours in a disciplined way. Yeah, uh, wow. So, yep. so, so, yeah, and I think that what I'm getting, I mean, I did a, a circuit sort of session with a group earlier in the week um, with Joe, Joe Root has an academy High Performance Academy here in Australia, and we're doing some stuff with them, and just some thing with Adelaide Uni Cricket Club last week, and um, I find the players love it, um, particularly the training stuff around agility, um, around learning agility, because it's all about small teams, learning fast, training drills, fast, um, fast feedback, still using net settings, but using different stresses and scores, and, um, and in a sense trying to say, well, every moment of a cricket game is competitive, so why wouldn't most moments of practice be competitive unless we earmark them for technique? Whereas I find most cricket training actually the opposite way around. Most training's technique and it's a little bit of competitive. That's not how an Olympic athlete would train. They would try and maximise their competitive and they'll have periods of focus on technique. But the technique's not the issue. The issue is, is the technique um, reliable under pressure? How do you do that? Well, you've got to test it. Last thing, learn, first thing, falls apart. Um, back to that sort of rule. So, so I'm having an absolute ball. Um, 
trying to work out how to disrupt the way cricket practices operate and see yeah. whether we can come up with some diff- different stuff. Uh. <laughs> so, so, so putting players in situations in the training, in the learning environment that prepare them for um, real match situations where they need to adapt and respond to the the conditions and and the 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 way the game is going is that is that kind of game sense uh, approach yeah, it is. to what, what you're using? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's game sense is one piece of it. If I if I sort of come back for a moment, go. One of the fundamental problems I think from a cricket perspective is when people think of psychology, they think I'm going to go and see a psychologist or I'm going to go to a workshop. Yeah. Um, and that is something you could do. But I think the most important thing to start with is to go, I want you to think about how your mindset actually plays out in your behaviour. Because if I can help you to do that, then we're going to focus on your behaviour and we'll tweak your mindset to get your behaviour right. So if you think from a cricket perspective, most of us can watch a game and go, I reckon a wicket's going to fall. Do you find yourself doing that, Matt? Yep, yep, I do, yep. Exactly. So what you're spotting, you'll be spotting one of two things. You'll be, what, you'll be spotting that players have a certain way of owning their space. Well, I'll call it owning their space. They have yep. a certain way of controlling their own body movements, their routines, their rituals, their time, their pace, and so on. So there's a certain sort of personality that might be a Steve Smith way of doing it. Yeah, it might be a Warner way of doing it. It might be a Labrador way of doing it, a Coley, whatever. They'll have their own. Once you know that, that's the first indicator to me because the good players will have a way of owning their space. And that's, in some respects, that's the sort of physical representation of their mindset. If they don't have a clear mind, if they're not you know, brave, clever, better in terms of those four things, you'll see that play out in their routines or stuff break down. And the second part of it is their shape. And you'll often hear the commentators saying they're losing shape. Yep. Um, so what we start with when we're starting with cricketers around Michael Cricket is to start saying, we want you to start thinking about your personality and your style as a player in the way you own your space and hold your shape. And now we're going to, once, once I get sort of clear on, okay, well, I can see what that means, then we can start to add game sense stresses, we can add physical stresses to them and so on and start to say, okay, we're going to test your ability to continue to um, own your space and hold your shape. So, for example, the Root Academy stuff we are doing earlier in the week, um, the batters do a 50-metre sprint. They sprint to a slot. They have to pad up. They have to sprint to the net. They then face three deliveries where they have targets to hit to. Yep. They run two twos. They, have two, they then have another three deliveries that are, uh, that are pinned at them. They have targets for those. They run then. They run to a spin net, and then then by six fast delivery spinning to um, into uh, a series of um, uh, bits and pieces on the pitch and so on to make it erratic. Yeah. Uh, and then they sprint back again. They they win points or lose points in their time. Um, and as we we video them, um, so the players can then look and go, "Gee, I can see what I look like, how I own space, and when I hold shape, when I'm in control." Yep. And now look what happens as I get tired. Um, I rush my routine. So what you see, for example, is you see the players, um, the ball dictate the pace rather than the bat, rather than the batter. Um, you'll see them short in the way that they go about their pre-shot routines. Um, you'll see them start to lurch towards the ball rather than hold the space, let the ball come into it. So all you, and, and what you do, if you take an agile learning approach to that, what you're then doing, the coach's role is to then debrief that. Um, 
So it's to get the player to start going, well, okay, that's what I want. What's the gap? What's the gap? Yeah. Um, and there's a guy called Gilbert Anoka, who's a who's the mental skills coach for the um, All Blacks. And he talks about the critical issue in mindset is always don't, don't get into talking about psychology. Get into talking about the gap. Mm. So what's the gap between what I'm doing and what my next level is? So if I'm working with a cricketer, it's, well, okay, what's happening with you? And it might be, well, actually, I'm, I'm losing the shape and getting out when I'm in the 30s or I'm not even getting away or I'm making bad decisions or whatever. So I think the challenge is twofold there. One is to have a kind of physical thing you can talk about from a mindset perspective rather than a psychological one and then help a player to just gradually get better at doing those things. Because at the end of the day, you watch the really good players, that's what they do. They own their space, they hold shape. Yeah. Um, and what's going on in their head, and that's how their technique obviously gets used and so on. So I think there's some really, uh, what we're trying to do is build up a sort of video library and a process for that. And yeah, the Root Academy guys are going through a, an eight-week program at the moment um, with child some stuff with some clubs. Um, and at the moment we're on a tight time frame to produce a, an international program for Root Academy for Joe um, on his app will go out internationally in about April. So, oh, wow. Um, so we're quite, yeah, so quite excited. I, I mean, I, it, it's experimental. It's testing it. Um, but the signs at the moment are all pretty good. The, um, coaches, I think, like it because it puts more responsibility on the players yep. to sort of own the practice and own the learning. Um, but, yeah, I've got some really good coaches that are doing some work with us to help us to do that. So, anyhow, covered cover a lot there, but gives you an idea of that. Yeah, no, that's outstanding. And, and you've got a new workbook as well that's coming out in the next couple of weeks. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and uh, who the intended audience for that would be? Sure, yeah. So, the, the thinking from my perspective, and I just having done this with sort of corporations around the world and um, probably, probably our core business for the last 15 to 20 years has been how do you deliver behavior change programs and yeah, we've sort of delivered them into China and South America and various other things. We've kind of got a pretty fair idea of what do you need to do to deliver a decent development process that can be scaled across teams and squads and so on. I guess what we've always found is you need, you need sort of four pieces to it. You need a really clear, overarching um, model and description of what you're trying to do, which is what the book's about. That just talks about this is what the cricket is. Yep. Second thing you need is a really practical workbook that players, coaches, and business team leaders and so on can pick up and go, oh, okay, yeah, I can see that. Um, the third thing is you then need really practical stuff like videos, session plans, stuff that you can go, that's nice, but what do I do tomorrow? Yep. Um, and then the final thing is you need coaches stuff that sits over the top of it because the coach then provides that learning environment. So last year was about getting the book organized last part of the year was about the workbook so workbooks just come out um and then the program uh which at the moment we're just calling the eight week mindset challenge um we'll work out as we go along because that's the eight weeks but it's got 16 pieces to it um so that's been fully the first first run through has been fully tested with some great players we've got feedback we're now running the second lot of that with um uh with, with the root academy guys uh, we're going to trial it with a couple of overseas groups um, as well in the Asian setting. Yep. Um, and we hope that we'll have that available uh, probably in the next three months. Um, yeah, it's a bit, of time, a bit of time pressure at the moment. Yep. But, um, but yeah, getting lots of good feedback on uh, the book and the workbook are the first sort of two pieces. And the feedback from that's been um, 
been really good, but I think also the feedback is that's great, but what do I do next? And that's why working on the videos. And we're starting to put up on the website now the sort of simple tools and videos that coaches can start to see and use, um, you know, those types of those types of sort of practical things. But we'll build a lot more of that um, over the next sort of six to eight weeks now books and workbooks are done. And how have you enjoyed being uh, involved in, in, in running these little circuits and, and seeing it in action? Have you, have you been finding you've been learning from what you've been seeing as oh, well? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, the basic principle of Agile um, is plan, do, check, adapt. So if you think about it as a learning loop, it's the classic, anyone that's done quality management will know that's the, you know, the Deming quality management sort of framework of have a plan, do it, check, so review, adapt, go again. So, yeah, the, the stuff that we did with guys the other day, you know, look, we're not sure how this is going to work. We've, we've tried some of it, uh, but, you know, we, we'll, we'll see how that goes. And, um, you know, the other uni guys last week, that was just fantastic. Um, you know, we, we just, you break the practice session up into a series of small activities. We have little mini whiteboards, the players um, jot on the whiteboards what their plan is for the next sort of activity. They do it, they debrief it. That's provided. The coaches sort of coordinate that. They go again. Um, but while they're doing that, we're also asking them to debrief the process. So, yeah, what works? So, like, on Tuesday, we realised our biggest issue was we had too many spectators. We just didn't have enough players yeah. fully active all the time. Um, so that's really our next design sort of challenge. And we're going to run a little mini one with one of the uh, local clubs um, next Wednesday, I think it is. We've got one with... Um, with a, a below grade sort of level club, that okay. sort of club, and that'll be really interesting. Cause, um, and we've got a school that we're going to try some stuff with as well. So, um, so yeah, I'm constantly go if you don't if you don't learn, you're screwed. Basically, <laughs> 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 I've learned that over the years. I mean, it's trouble with stuff I do is the more you do, the more you know what you don't know. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I think cricket just has it's just such a fabulous. We're not going to get away from the nets because that's just a physical. Yeah, that, that's a constraint. We just have to work with that. But yeah. I think I, I, I just find so many coaches saying, I've got 50 players to look after, I've got five nets, I, I want to provide this. How do I do it? But I look at businesses and they're saying the same thing and they're using agile style methods saying, well, rather than putting the responsibility on the leaders, let's put it on the players, create the learning environment and the coaches can then use their expertise more around reflection, feedback. And we've got little... And like the, the, the process we'll use next week is they're using their phone. Like you buddy them up and they've got their phones, they're videoing their, uh, their practice bits. So it's not we don't have the technology. The players can be responsible for that. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that I think we can do with cricket to make practice more interesting, more engaging, um, and more relevant to, to the games as well. So, um, and that works. I mean, that won't please everybody and yeah, it'll, it'll <laughs> rattle, <laughs> rattle the cage of a few sort of, uh, traditionalists, but um, oh, look, I've seen enough sports and enough great coaches around the world to know that there's plenty of room for different ways of doing things. And um, if we can provide some uh, for, for people that yeah, improves their mindset, improves their mental health, improves their cricket, um, yeah, I'm happy. Yeah, <laughs> no, it sounds, sounds like you're really passionate about it, and and that's coming through in 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 what you're saying. Now, just to wrap up, we do a our, our final question, and I haven't prepped you on this. I'm sorry, but the um, the last question for you is, if you could have a net session with three people, uh, they can be alive or dead, uh, who, who would your top three picks be to, to have a net with? 
So I get battle bowl. Or you you, you can you can do them. what you can do whatever you like. You could just watch the net. Like if, if it was me, I'd love to send a few down um, and and see how I see how I'd handle myself. But um, they could be cricketers, not cricketers. Um, just three people you'd like to hang out with at the nets. Wow, that's a that's a huge question. <laughs> um, Okay. Well, how long have we got? Here? Well, well, um, the, the, the interestingly, oh. last the last podcast we did, uh, we had Daryl Tuffy on, and his first mm. pick was the man you dismissed in your seven wicket haul against the West Indies. He had he had <laughs> he had Viv as his first pick, so sounds like Viv might be your bunny. So you might want to throw him in there, but there, there could be anyone. Oh, look, I, I guess I guess what I'd like to do. Oh, this is probably going to be a little bit. Challenging. I mean, I'd bring Bradman. Yeah, I'd have Bradman. Um, I'd definitely have Bradman. Um, I, I suppose what I'd like to do is just to set aside the myth that cricketers these days are not as good as the players in the past. Um, everybody's great in their era. So, I, um, can I can I pat Cummins bowling to Bradman? Oh, that'd be outstanding. Um, and, and, um, Oh, can I be all Australian here? Yeah, let's go, Warney. Uh, but I'd love to get um, I'd love to get Viratoli in there somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but I think to see, to see Bradman face Warn and Cummins. So I think I think Cummins is probably the best fast bowler I've seen in the last twenty years. And um, Warn and just to see, yeah, what well, I think that would be pretty amazing. Yeah. But, yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, I'd, I'd pay money to see that. I reckon that'd be outstanding. That'd be absolutely outstanding. Yeah. And just finally, Graham, for those that want to look further into the Mindful Cricket, um, uh, your book or the, the, the workbook or your website, can you, can you give us some information about what people can do to, to have a look a, a, sure. a bit more into what you're doing? Yep, definitely. So, um, so mindfulcricket.com is the, the like, like most things, it's, um, it's on, a, on a website, so we've set that up. Um, people can um, access some free tools and so on there. They're welcome to, to join uh, we've got a Facebook page, which is Michael Cricket as well. Um, they can buy the, the Michael Cricket book through the website. They can buy the, web, the workbook through it, and they're both available as e-books, uh, you know, anything, Kindle, yep. um, yeah, or whatever um, as well. So um, but I guess what I'm keen to do is build a bit of a community around Michael Cricket. So um, that's a bit of a labour of love. So love people to come have a look at that and yep. please join up. We're not, we're not actually trying to spam anybody or whatever. <laughs> we just sent notes. Just sent notes out to everybody in the last 48 hours saying, we just want more feedback. Yeah. Um, please, don't be polite. Tell us what's working, what's not working. So, um, yeah, love to love to do that. And, um, um, yeah, I'm keen to, pay, keen to pay the game back a bit because I think we probably sort of discussed through here, if it wasn't for cricket, I wouldn't have been to Olympic Games and, you know, worked with corporations around the world and, yeah, had a sort of fabulous time. So, um, yeah, nothing's probably more satisfying than seeing sort of Young young boys and young girls playing cricket, and enjoying it and developing while they're doing it. So um, yeah, we can do that. That's pretty excellent. Well, make sure you do that, ladies and gentlemen. If you're listening, uh, seek that information out and be a part of the community and uh, learn together with other people that are trying to improve themselves and improve the way they do things. So. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, Graham. I've, I've really appreciated you giving us your time this evening for the Cricket Library podcast and I wish you all the best uh, with Mindful Cricket and uh, all the other things that you've got uh, mapped out for the rest of uh, the, the rest of your career. 
thank you. Thank you very much. And, yeah, can I just say thank you to you too? I mean, your contribution to cricket is just amazing through this and through the coaching and the development work that you do as well. And um, I, I suspect a lot of that goes un- unlauded, but uh, <laughs> uh, so, many, so many people benefit. So, yeah, yeah, kudos to you. So, so thanks, folks. A massive thank you to Graham Winter for joining us on our very first edition of the Cricket Library podcast for 2020. A very informative conversation. I learned a lot in that last little while chatting with Graham. Excellent to hear his insights about what it was like playing first class cricket and all the interesting learnings as a performance psychologist working with elite athletes, Olympic Games, preparing athletes for those kind of events, uh, working with cricketers now with his new Mindful Cricket book and workbook and the, the training circuits that he's been doing with that, really fascinating stuff and really cutting edge kind of stuff in terms of preparing cricketers to perform at their best and we'll be watching that closely. So please make sure you, you do join those Facebook groups and the LinkedIn community there, the Mindful Cricket LinkedIn community, and contribute and share your, share your own learnings along the way as well. It would be great for that to happen and for us to, to learn from each other, I guess, along the way there as cricket is a great place to bring people together and this podcast has hopefully been a great place to bring people together thank you so much for listening thank you for all of you who subscribe and those of you who've left reviews on the itunes store if you haven't you might like to do that that could be that could be on your to-do list for tomorrow leaving us a review that would be very much appreciated plenty of exciting things happening in 2020 with the podcast keep your eye on our social channels to make sure that you can be across all of that in the meantime it's time for me to to bid you all farewell thank you so much again this is matt ellis signing off for another edition of the cricket library podcast bye for now